0: just wanted to point out to you that if you are having Christmas gatherings tonight or tomorrow there's no excuses for awkward silences because when someone asks you well what was your Christmas service like you can say well we thought about Micah chapter 5 and the birth of Jesus and how it was prophesied then we thought about how Jesus mowed down an entire army before he took on flesh. And if you get no response, then, then you can say, oh, yeah, and we had a Christmas sermon from the book of Revelation. <laughs> so if there are awkward silences, I, I, I can't help you. <laughs> Revelation uh, chapter 12, and what I hope to do with this is draw together some of those passages that we read uh, before, and um, this in one commentary, this section has been called an overview of redemptive history, an overview of redemptive history. And so let's, let's hear God's word. Revelation 12, um, read the first six verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. He might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Amen. That is the word of our living God. Well, the last passage that we, we read in our eight lessons was from Matthew chapter 2. And uh, Matthew gives us a bit of a different perspective than Luke does on the birth of Jesus. Uh, Matthew began his gospel by uh, presenting the birth of Jesus from Joseph's perspective. But then, like, like a movie camera cuts the scene from one to another, we move immediately to this distant place in the Near East to show us the birth of Jesus through the eyes of some ancient scholars called Magi. And what did they see? What does Matthew tell us that they saw? Well, they first saw that star, and they followed it west. And then they saw Herod, and they they heard that prophecy from Micah chapter 5. They then followed the star again. They arrive in Bethlehem, and we are told very precisely what they saw. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. The child with Mary, his mother. Now this time of year, that's probably the most iconic image that we see. We see it on Christmas cards. We see it in nativity scenes. Uh, There's various works of art that have been produced throughout history depicting that nativity scene. And almost universally, Mary's mentioned first. uh, We'll see this artwork. It's called Mary and Child, Mother and Child, the Madonna and Child. Um, The the well-known Carol Silent Night uses that same phrase, Mother and Child. But that's not how Matthew... Describes what these ancient scholars saw. He says very deliberately and specifically they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Matthew emphasizes and underlines that order for a reason because he repeats it four more times. It's never Mary and the child. It's the child with Mary, his mother. One writer pointed out, if if this were a camera in a movie, the camera is zooming in on Jesus, and Mary's kind of out of focus in the background. The child takes center stage. Though, humanly speaking, he seems helpless, he takes center stage. And Matthew provides his commentary on these events by... Referring to various Old Testament prophecies. Uh, He quotes from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from Hosea. He records uh, the words that Herod's counselors spoke from Micah chapter 5. And the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, is, is drawing our minds back through biblical history. All the way back to Genesis to see that God's redemptive plan to save sinners was foretold in the words of Micah from the days of old. That long-awaited child had arrived. Salvation would be accomplished by the offspring of the woman, by this son, by this seed, by this child. And Revelation chapter 12 Uh, uses this very same theme, this very same paradigm when giving an overview of this redemptive history. We read that this great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains at the agony of giving birth. Now I know some time ago Fritz had preached through the book of Revelation, and he likely pointed out to you that in the book of Revelation, the number 12 and its derivatives, well, that's the number of the church. Uh, there were 12 tribes. There were 12 apostles. The number 12, uh, the number 24, 144,000, uh, this is the symbolic number of the church. And so the, the image here is of the Old Testament church pictured as a woman in labor before the birth of Christ, the male child. And again, this picks up on that theme that Christ would come from among his brothers. He would come from the church, as it were, be born as a man. And then we have the picture of Really, the birth and the complete work of Christ uh, pictured in verses 4 and 5. We read that the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Think of what happens in Matthew 3 when Herod decrees that all those children should be murdered or devoured. But she gave birth to the male child one is to, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, you'll notice how John there just, he, he sort of summarizes the complete work of Christ. His birth as a child, his, his life lived on earth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, his being caught up to God and to his throne. Why is this important? Well, I think from the early chapters of Genesis, we're really given a paradigm by which we should understand the Bible, a lens through which we should look at it. If you think about Genesis 3.15, right away there is a mention of two seeds or two offsprings, the, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the serpent. And Revelation 12 9, it does this. It brings us right back to Genesis 3. The great dragon was thrown down. Who is he? That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Takes us right back to the first gospel promise in Genesis 3:15 when God said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this term offspring or seed, that is a key word in Genesis and in the Old Testament. Um, In Genesis 4.25, we read that Adam knew his wife again and they had a son named named Seth and uh, she said God has appointed for me another offspring another seed instead of Abel for Cain killed him and from that point in genesis we begin to see something interesting we we begin to see two seeds the righteous line of seth and the wicked line of cain traced two seeds the seed of the serpent, symbolizing man still in Adam, man without Christ, and the the seed of the woman, the seed of Seth, man in Christ. And so we are very much meant to read the Bible with an eye to this theme, that there is very much a contest a battle between two seeds. And that, that climax to that battle is what's pictured in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him there's this great announcement, this voice from heaven. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. What's being pictured there is what happened at the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That it was a great victory, that the seed of the woman had prevailed. Again, the, the whole stage for the conflict is set in In Genesis 3, it's it's framed in terms of a battle. We're told that the seed of the woman, Jesus, would crush the serpent's head, but it wouldn't be without cost to himself. The bruising of his heel was the cross where, yes, Jesus crushed Satan, but he gave his own life to do so. And as we trace biblical history, especially in the Old Testament, we see that it's concerned with the line of Jesus. It went through Seth, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and David. And as this line of Christ runs throughout history before the incarnation, what is Satan trying to do? Destroy the seed, destroy the line. He wants to destroy Christ even before he came into the world. That's this this imagery of the woman crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. It's, It's that contest in the Old Covenant before Jesus was born. And that means when we read the Bible, we need to see Christ's victories along the way. We need to see this contest going on. When Cain killed Abel, it was the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. When Moses faced Pharaoh, it was the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And it's interesting that in the book of Ezekiel, Pharaoh, um, almost exact language of Revelation 12, Pharaoh is called a great dragon. When David faced Goliath, or Saul, or Absalom. It was the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. It was the same when Queen Athaliah set out to destroy the heirs to the throne. When King Ahasuerus issued that decree that all the Jews should be put to death. Seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And we see it vividly when Christ is born, when Herod sought to destroy Christ at his birth. That's the paradigm we should read the Bible by, and we should see at every turn in this battle, even when the seed of Christ seems to be on the ropes, when it seems almost hopeless, the line is preserved and there is victory. And that helps us to understand, I think, why uh, there's... No more genealogies after the gospel accounts. Why is that? Because the seed of the woman was victorious. He prevailed. And all of these prophecies foresaw that this child, this son, this offspring of the woman, he would provide everything that we lack. For our confusion... And our chaos, he is the wonderful counselor. For our weakness and our helplessness, he is the mighty God. For slaves and spiritual orphans, he is the everlasting Father. For our distress, for our anxiety, he's the Prince of Peace. And that's why when those wise men from the East, when they came, they did not see Jesus as a mere baby. We are told that they fell down and worshipped him and they opened up their treasures and they gave him those costly gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. They didn't hesitate to give this child their best. And it's, it's worth noting that this is kind of ad- abnormal if you think about it. Normally, you give gifts to the baby's parents. And, and normal gifts are something like diapers or clothes or food. It's clear that they knew this was no ordinary child, and they came to worship him. They gave their gifts, and they gave themselves as they bowed down before him. And I think the message for us is it's clear that when we see Christ not as a mere baby in a manger, but as the Savior, the male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, the one who gave his life as a ransom for many, when we see his glory and his royalty and his everlasting love for us, then our response should be exactly the same to fall at his feet and worship him, offering to him the best treasures that we might have, being willing to lay at his feet all that, he, all that we hold dear. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the incarnate Son of God, the Word made flesh, and tabernacled among us. The one who was touched with our frailty and weakness. The one who offered to you that perfect obedience that we never could have. And the one who died the cursed death of the cross. Lord, we rejoice that he has now been caught up to you and to your throne and he now rules and reigns for us. Lord, cause us to bow down and worship you, to open to you everything that we hold dear, that we might serve you with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.